Lord, we're so thankful for the Word of God, which gives us insight into the character of God and gives us clear direction as to how, as children of God, we are to live and the kind of attitude that we should have towards you and towards those around us and towards this world. We're thankful, Lord, that this is not our home, that we are just passing through, and one day we will be there in your eternal paradise, and we look forward to that. But, Father, I pray we'll be faithful to the task that you've given us to do here, not only faithful to do the, the, the job which is ours, but faithful in prayer and uh, faithful in obedience. Lord, bless our time together now. Give us wisdom and insight into your word as we focus on the 20th chapter of Genesis. In Christ's name, amen. I'd like to uh, read the first seven verses of Genesis chapter uh, 20. Now Abraham journeyed from there toward the land of the Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur. Then he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She is my sister. So Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night and said to him, Behold, you're a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is married. Now Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, wilt thou slay a nation even though blameless? Did he not himself say to me, She is my sister? And she herself said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this, and I also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore I did not let you touch her. Now therefore restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die you and all who are yours. Two weeks ago, we began to study this particular passage, which I've entitled Deja Vu in Philistia. The Deja Vu, of course, harking back to the 12th and 13th chapters of Genesis, where a very similar incident occurred only in Egypt. Again, what is he doing down in the Negev? What is he doing over in Philistia? Scripture doesn't tell us. It doesn't, didn't really tell us in the first place why he went from Bethel all the way down to the Negev. And then, of course, it tells us why he went into Egypt the first time, and that was because of the famine in the land. But why is he down in the Negev now? Why does he move from Hebron, where he was living and where he had, it seemed, had a stake in, in society there? Why does he move down into the Negev? Well, Last time we noted it was possible that he had a falling out with his neighbors there, or more likely, uh, conditions of drought may have come in in that part and, and the grass was better in the Negev. It seems unlikely, however, since that tends to be a drier area further south you get, but it's possible. Whatever the case is, whatever was the reason, he ends up in Gerar, which as best as uh, the archaeologists are able to tell, was located about a half a dozen miles south of the city of Gaza. Now, we talked a little bit about the Philistines. There are a lot of arguments that have been set forth during the recent decades concerning the Philistines. Uh, Philistia is the title or the name given to the plain on the coast south of the so-called Plain of Sharon. And it's the uh, Flatland down there, as you come down out of the hill country onto the coastal plain of the Mediterranean, it's the southern coastal plain. The people who lived there are known historically as the Sea People. They were a people who migrated out of the Aegean Sea area. They apparently attacked Egypt at one time, were driven off, and ultimately settled down on the coast of what we later call, or what was later called, Philistia. Now, some argue that the Philistines didn't come there until the 12th century, and so this couldn't be the Philistines. But it seems a little bit strange that Moses talks about the background of the Philistine people and uh, the development of that race. And, of course, Moses would have lived centuries before the supposed development of uh, Philistia. 
It seems that the ancestors of the Philistines of David's day were in the land long before the 12th century. And probably that's who Abimelech was. The, the name, the title Abimelech, as we noted, simply means father of a king. And it's a title, like Pharaoh was a title in Egypt. It's not his name, it's a title. And we discover that uh, he rules this small city-state. Uh, probably just a few hundred square miles centered on the city of Gerar. Very characteristic of Palestine in those days. Made up of dozens of little city-states, uh, and that's why every once in a while one of the big powers would move in, like Egypt from the south, or, or one of the powers from Mesopotamia, or the Hittites from Asia Minor, would come down and overrun these city-states because individually they weren't able to resist these great powers, and so they would be linked together. But in the interim, uh, the land was divided into numerous uh, city-states that seemed to be independent one from the other. Now, the question is, what in the world is Abraham doing here, repeating this same situation that occurred approximately 25 years before in Egypt? It would have seemed to have been humiliating enough the first time to not go through exactly the same thing again. I mean, we're not talking about something that he could have casually forgotten. After all, it was maybe 25 years before. It would have burned itself in his memory. How could he forget the stinging rebuke of Pharaoh? But just think in your own life, things that have happened to you maybe 25 or even 30 or 40 years ago where, where you experienced a stinging rebuke of some sort. Do you forget it? No, it keeps coming back, right? Uh, every once in a while, that thing pops in your mind, almost out of nowhere. Certainly, Abraham and Sarah had not forgotten. But as we look at our own lives, it becomes quite clear how this could happen. How many of us have fallen into the same sin multiple times? And sins that were certainly as, as bad as, as this particular sin. We find in the second verse of this passage that Abraham and Sarah repeat exactly the same lie. She is my sister. He is my brother. Well, we find out when we go into the next passage that this was a, a pact that they had made when they first, apparently first set out from Haran to go into the land of Canaan. So what we have here is Satan is playing on Abraham's fears and intimidating him to act in human strength and according to human wisdom all over again. Obviously, if Satan can get us, get us, get God's people, to act according to the flesh, according to human wisdom, rather than trusting God, he's achieved his purpose. He, of course, weakens us when we do that. Now, what reason did Abraham have to fear Abimelech? Well, far less reason than to fear Pharaoh. Pharaoh was the ruler of a great kingdom. And it's very probable that Abraham was in Egypt at the time of the Middle Kingdom. And we, we talked about that at that particular time. Now, the Middle Kingdom was not as powerful and as glorious as the Old Kingdom or the New Kingdom in Egyptian history, but it nevertheless was a time when Pharaoh exhibited great strength. But who's Abimelech? Abimelech is the ruler of a little city-state by the name of Gerar. Probably, as I mentioned a minute ago, a, a hundred or more square miles in area, probably at the most. A few thousand people altogether. He was really, I mean, the word king is kind of stretching it here. Really. It was very characteristic to use the word king for these petty little uh, principalities. Uh, but that's exactly what he was, was a petty king with limited power, limited resources. Uh, probably couldn't field an army of more than a few hundred soldiers if he had to. So when you think about that, who really should have feared whom? It was much more likely that Abimelech should have been afraid of Abraham because Abraham was a mighty chieftain. Abraham, as we've already noted, had a following or a household of at least a couple of thousand. He was able from his own household to put together an army of over 300 people. And uh, 
Abraham had dealt very, very strongly with Chedorlaomer, who was a king out of Mesopotamia with his allied powers, an army of many thousands. Easily could have overrun Abimelech. It's Abimelech who should have been afraid of Abraham rather than vice versa. But think of Sarah for a moment, if we will. Sarah is going on 90 years of age. Yet Abimelech came and took her into his harem. If Sarah lived in our day, can you imagine the money she could break in in sharing her secrets, her beauty secrets? How is it that at 90 she can still be so desirable that this king would want her in his harem? Now, we've noted this before when we talked about Pharaoh, that the kings of the Near East of those days, it was their prerogative to bring any unmarried woman into the harem that they so chose. Now, usually they were wise and they negotiated a deal, uh, particularly if the, if the woman happened to belong to a, a ranking family. If the, if the woman belonged to a peasant family, why, it, you know, <laughs> Pharaoh didn't have to make much of a deal. And so it's not unusual, nor should it be considered strange to us uh, that this harem should exist, nor that this man should want to bring another woman into the harem. But why did he choose Sarah? I think there was probably more than her beauty here. I think that it was also that he had political motives in mind. After all, he did certainly acknowledge that Abraham was a mighty chieftain, a, a Bedouin sheik, uh, one that it would be good to have on your side in case trouble arose. He would make a good ally, and he could be a very dangerous enemy. So if you can put his sister into your harem, you will link him to your kingdom, and thus he will become uh, an ally. And certainly this was in Abimelech's thinking. But is that the only thought that he had? No, I think that it come, becomes very clear to us as we read the dream about the dream that Abimelech was given by God that he had more in mind than simply a political alliance, that he certainly had in mind a sexual relationship, whatever else he had in mind. Now remember when we studied about this same situation in Egypt, we talked about how, what, what thoughts must have run through Abraham's mind as Sarah was off now in that harem and he was in his tent alone without his wife. And she was off in this, in this foreign harem. I mean, the situation was far worse for her because Abraham was still in his own environment, but she was not. She was in a strange environment. She was in a pagan environment. She was in a, a, an environment that was totally foreign to her and with people that she did not know. What must have gone through their minds? What must Sarah have thought about this situation and thought about her husband? And what did he think? What went through his mind as they were separated? As we'll note in a minute, they weren't separated for just a few hours or even a few days. It's very probable they were separated for several months. And uh, this would give plenty of time to think and for God to begin to deal with them in their hearts. Is this, I mean, is this better than death? Really? Is it? Well, unfortunately, though, we find in this passage that as was true in the case of Pharaoh, neither Abraham nor Sarah moved to right the wrong they had done. Instead, it was God who blew their cover. When I studied that, this passage came to mind. I'd like to turn to it in, Nove in, in November. <laughs> <laughs> Numbers, chapter 32. That's right, only 30 days. Couldn't be November. <laughs> Numbers 32, verse 20. So Moses said to them, If you will do this, if you will arm yourselves before the Lord for the war, and all of you armed men cross over the Jordan before the Lord until he has driven his enemies out from before him, and the land is subdued before the Lord, then afterward you shall return and be free of obligation toward the Lord and toward Israel, and this land shall be yours for a possession before the Lord. But if you will not do so, 
Behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. Now, the clear context is Moses speaking to the uh, leadership of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, who wanted to settle over on the east side of the Jordan River. They wanted to settle up in Gilead and Bashan, and it was a good place for them to settle. That was fine. And uh, Moses is saying, you may have this land, but you may not, as a result, then abandon your brothers who are going to conquer the land because the land was given to them all and you must give them aid. And so they had to promise to send aid. And if they didn't, be sure your sin of failing to do what God has commanded you to do will find you out. Now, that's the context. But personally, I believe that the truth, the principle taught there in the 23rd verse is a universal principle. It doesn't just apply to that circumstance, that context. I believe it applies at all times and at all places. Be sure your sin will find you out. Sin may at first be known only to God and the sinner, but after a while, that sin will work itself out in weakness and in destruction in our lives, in the lives of the sinner, and may eventually become public in, to devastating effect, as we see here and was true in the case when Abraham and Sarah were in Egypt. And you and I understand this, I think, better than maybe others in previous generations in American history may have. I mean, we've always had our, our what, our Elmer Gantries and, and this kind of thing. But what we have seen and what we've witnessed in the last five to ten years has really caused a great deal of consternation in the body of Christ. As men and women of, of uh, seeming great integrity have fallen almost like flies to the great joy of the secular media, of course, but to the pain of the church. And God, of course, his name has been drugged through the mud as a result. Abraham and Sarah are powerful examples of this same truth. They are the leaders of God's work of that time. Uh, the scripture doesn't tell us of anyone else who walked with God as they walked with God at that time in history. That's not to say no one else knew God. It's simply those persons are not in scripture if they existed, and they probably did. But here we have God coming to Abimelech in a dream. Now, if God tells Abimelech this, God is going to bring reproach on his own name through Abraham. Why does God do this? He could just keep it all hushed up, you know, like we like to do. We want to cover it all up so nobody knows. And of course, it this festers like a boil over there, but at least theoretically, nobody knows. But God isn't like that. God's into boil lancing. God is into letting it all hang out as the expression, I don't know, maybe we don't use that anymore, but we used to. <laughs> letting it all hang out, even if it means that his name is going to be smeared. God is able to handle it, it seems. So God came to Abimelech in a dream, and he revealed to him the whole sordid truth. Now we might say, what's so sordid about it? Just a lie. It's a big deal. <laughs> well, as I was intimating a minute ago, it was obviously a very, very big deal because of the great pain it was bringing to Abraham and to Sarah and certainly to the household of Abraham. The others who lived in Abraham's household, they knew what was going on. What kind of a witness was this, this, this great spiritual father to his own household, to his own workers and helpers and shepherds and whatever else that were living in his household. But God came to Abimelech in a dream, and he threatened him. He said, if you keep Sarah in your harem, you're a dead man. God's pretty blunt. <laughs> God doesn't uh, beat around the bush, even if it happens to be burning in the desert. God comes right to the point. You'll notice the word is very pointed. 
And we try to skirt it all the time. God says, thou shalt not do this, but we say, but he didn't really mean this. He, what he meant was, and off we run, you know, with some bending of the truth to accommodate what we, we desire to do, really. It's what it ultimately amounts to. Now, we're going to see, as we go a little bit further in the chapter, that God made Abimelech understand that he wasn't kidding, that this was the honest truth that he was sharing with him by preventing the ladies in his household from conceiving. This, of course, implies that Sarah was in the household for a somewhat protracted period of time. Because obviously, uh, you know, if we're talking about several ladies in the harem and within the royal household who were not conceiving, would it be unusual if they didn't in a course of a few days or a week? Probably not. Uh, for it to happen, though, over a period of several months, then it becomes apparent that something is wrong. Now, notice something about Abimelech in the fourth verse of this particular passage. The verse says, Now Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will thou slay a nation, even though blameless? Now he's, you know, it was obvious that uh, God's threat wasn't only to Abimelech personally, because he interprets here that his whole nation is being threatened by these words from the Lord. He addresses God, Adonai, which means master or Lord. Now, where does he get that? Is that simply Moses putting this word in the mouth of Abimelech? Or is Moses ab recording, under God's revelation, the actual words used by Abimelech? I think so. Where did he get this word Adonai? Does this imply that Abraham had talked with him already about the Lord? That there had been some kind of conversation between Abra Abraham and Abimelech about Adonai? This is the name that Abraham used for the Lord, as we've already noted, Adonai. Well, we can't tell. Scripture doesn't say, but by implication, we might assume that this was so, unless the Lord simply in the dream revealed himself by that particular name, and that's very possible. The Lord came to him and said, this is Adonai, and this is my word to you in the dream. You'll notice that he responds very intelligently, and he protests his innocence here. And God does credit him with integrity of heart. He says, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart. Now, God makes no comment upon the culture and practice of that particular day, uh, in, implying that harems weren't exactly God's plan for mankind. He, he just, within the context that Abimelech knew and Abimelech lived, God credited him with acting in integrity of his heart. But the Lord informs him at that point that it was he, God, who kept him from violating Sarah and thus from sinning against him. Two important points, I think, surface here at this juncture. First, there are times when God actually restrains us from sin. For our sakes, for the sake of the kingdom of God, for the sake of another child of God, he may at times thwart our effort to be disobedient, to fulfill our lusts in some way. But this is not a normal plan that God follows. You and I know that right well, I think. The primary way by which God seeks to restrain us from sin is through this book. This is the primary way by which he wants to put sin out of our lives. This book, as we study it, and it's empowered by the Spirit of God, is the primary barrier to sin in our lives. And of course, the better we know it, the better are our possibilities of overcoming sin. Scripture tells us very plainly that as Christians, we are no longer slaves to sin. Paul makes that quite clear. We are not slaves to sin if we are believers. We have changed masters. Our master is no longer the world, the flesh, and the devil. Our master is God. 
We are his slaves. We are his bondservants. We're not the enemy's bondservants. The world has no choice but to sin. And we should never be surprised when it happens. To find out that two successive uh, appointees to the uh, attorney generalship had themselves violated the law shouldn't be amazing to us. Because obviously the world is going to live in sin. It knows no better. It knows nothing else. It's a slave to sin. But the only power sin has over us is the power we allow it. Again, the phrase made so flippantly, the devil made me do it, is obviously purely an excuse. The devil makes us do nothing. The devil can tempt us, but he cannot make us if we are the children of God. We choose, we allow it to happen in our lives. Let me read a passage that's very familiar to you from the 119th Psalm, which reinforces this idea uh, relative to the significance here of the Word of God and defeating sin in our lives. Psalm 119, verse 9. How can a young man, or obviously young woman, or an old man, or an old woman, or any human being, keep his way pure by keeping it according to thy word? With all my heart I have sought thee. Do not let me wander from thy commandments. Thy word have I treasured, have I hidden in my heart that I may not sin against thee. We sing that chorus. But do we really hide the word of God in our hearts? What is the purpose of hiding the word of God in our heart? That we might not sin. As our hearts are filled with the word of God, there's no rootage for sin. And then Paul in Romans chapter 8 gives us understanding how this works. Romans 8, verse 1. And I love that first verse. I think we all do, don't we? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's how he starts. You know, he lays the foundation. We go around and beat ourselves over the head for our sin, and we think God has left us and rejected us, but the Scripture clearly teaches there is no condemnation, no ultimate condemnation for those who are in Christ. Oh, we need to be repentant for our sin. And, you know, we hear all this talk sometimes about how bad guilt is, and we should never allow guilt to come along. But if we're guilty, what else do you expect, you know? There's going to be some guilt, but the guilt should not remain because we should confess our sin as we repent, then the guilt is removed. And, of course, there is no condemnation, no ultimate guilt to those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You know, we always think, well, you know, the guy was really good. He, he led this, this big uh, crusade to wipe out cancer or to wipe out, you know, multiple sclerosis or something else. So God's got to really pay attention to him because look all the good he did. Well, Scripture says, the mind set on the flesh cannot please God no matter what he or she does in this life. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him in the first place. 
which kind of deep sixes uh, those theologies that say, well, you know, uh, you may be a Christian, but you don't have the Holy Spirit yet until you have this particular little encounter. Well, uh, you're not a Christian if you don't have the Holy Spirit. Now, there is a point at which you may submit, submit yourself and, and come under uh, the greater umbrella of what the Scripture calls sanctification, but we are justified and the Spirit of God dwells in us if we are believers or else we're not believers. And if Christ is in you, through, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who indwells you. So what is the key? The key is the mindset. Notice the constant replica uh, repetition of the term mindset. We, we often read that Romans passage where it says that we're to be transformed, uh, that we're not to have our, 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 you know, by the renewing of our mind, that we might be a different person. And that mindset comes through regeneration, and then we build it by studying the Word of God. And as we study the Word of God, that mindset becomes more and more fixed and, and more real in our lives, and then the mindset of the world becomes more and more foreign to us and is rejected by us. And we don't think the way the world thinks. I think all of us can, can express the realization of if we've been in the Lord a long time, we begin to say, how in the world do they think like that? But then when we stop and remember back, <laughs> remember back to the days, we, we, when we weren't in the Lord, we, we then understand why they think that way. But it's so foreign to the mindset in Christ. It's illogical. It makes no sense. But to the world, our mindset makes no sense. You, know, you guys are going around with your head in the, in, in the, either in the sand or in the clouds, one place or the other. They can't figure out which. And uh, we don't know what's going on. You know, We're all Pollyan pious Pollyannas or something. And... Uh, so we have two schools here. Each doesn't understand the other, you know, uh, to some extent. So, first of all, uh, we have, I think, coming through this particular passage that God does intercede and intervene and God does halt sin. From time to time, He just plain does it uh, unilaterally. Other times, most of the time, He does it through the planning of the word in our hearts and minds. A second truth that comes out here, and I think extremely important, is the fact that adultery is not a minor sin. Adultery is something we don't just pass off and say, well, yeah, it was too bad, but, you know, we all have our problems and we all have our sins. Notice uh, the wording here. Let me get back to the sixth verse there of... Uh, Genesis 20, then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this, and I also kept you from sinning against me. God doesn't say this would have been, you know, a cultural problem. God says this would have been a sin against me, God. He said that he did not let Abimelech touch Sarah because had he done so, it would have been sin in God's eyes. I think it's important for us to always be reminded of the fact that it doesn't matter what the customs of the country is or the custom of the ages is. God operates above and beyond time and culture. He operates according to the immutable standards of his own character. Mike. If that's the case, then how do harems, how does God allow harems in that culture? It's a cultural thing. Harems are a cultural, cultural thing. And you said it wasn't God's perfect plan. How does that fit? Well, uh, we're going to be reading a passage in Matthew in a few minutes where they said to, where the Pharisees said, well, then why did Moses grant a bill of divorce? And Jesus' response was what? because of the hardness of their hearts. And harems developed for, through the same route, for the hardness of their hearts. Would it recognize the sin? Oh, sure. Harems? 
Uh, well, again, we're, y y your question is good, and, and you're just getting me down the line quicker here than I was planning to get there. <laughs> but David, what, what had God said uh, in, in, through Moses in the Pentateuch? God had said that the kings that would eventually arise in Israel were not to do what? Multiply what? They weren't supposed to multiply wives unto themselves. Well, that's pretty clear. But what does David do? He multiplies wives. As best we can tell, David had 18 wives. That sounds like multiplication to me. <laughs> no. and, and yet, and yet, God does not say, you're damned and going to hell, David, because you've got 18 wives. No, he doesn't say that. He calls him what? The apple of his eye. <laughs> well, let me get there. You're very astute, Mike. <laughs> You're in a hurry. <laughs> you get it from your wife. Oh, okay. Anybody who doesn't know, that's his wife is my is our daughter. So that's our son-in-law. <laughs> that's why he's so astute. <laughs> no. <laughs> And they're sitting back there because they had their little, littlest child with them and the littlest child has a cold, so they didn't want to contaminate anybody. So, so say thanks. <laughs> um, to violate the teaching on marriage that is given to us in the second chapter of Genesis is always destructive. It is never beneficial. And we talked about why that was so when we discussed the second chapter of Genesis. Do you remember that? It was in this lifetime. <laughs> now, our society, as you well know, has a flippant and cavalier attitude towards marriage. But God in no way changes his attitude. He always considers it a sacred institution. And God has dealt with adultery harshly. And I would like for us to be reminded of that instant in David's life that uh, we know so well, but I think it is worth looking at the scripture again in Samuel, 2 Samuel, chapter 12. We always remember Nathan's finger, thou art the man don't we? Nathan the prophet. Verse 7, Then Nathan said to David, You are the man, after giving this very pointed little illustration about the rich man, the poor man, and the sheep, and the visitors, and all the rest of it. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, It is I who appointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. In case you've forgotten, David, I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives from before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he shall lie with your wives in broad daylight. Now who was that companion? Absalom, right, his son Absalom. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. 
God removed his sin, but the impact of that sin was there and the whole nation knew. And so God said, because you have uh, brought filth upon my name, you have caused my name to be despised, to be jeered at, this child will die. See, God does not treat it lightly. God treats it very, very seriously. Actually, God treats all sin seriously. And we have a tendency to trivialize it sometimes. And we must... I think one of the greatest causes of weakness in the church of America today is the fact that we trivialize sin. And we don't acknowledge it. We don't recognize the importance of repentance. We all sin. And God understands that. But the scripture tells us that we are to confess that sin and repent of that sin, that we may get on with it, that the work of God may go forth, that the name of God might be proclaimed, not besmirched in the land. Now, Jesus, of course, gives us some of the most clear teaching relative to the concept of adultery. In Matthew chapter 5, Verse 27, he contrasts the true teaching with what they have said. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And of course, he's quoting the Ten Commandments. But I say to you, he's going behind the teaching of the commandments. What's it based on? That everyone who looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. He's going at the heart condition, which is the root of the sin. Then down in verse 31, and it was said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of dismissal. But I say unto you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the cause of unchastity, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Then down in the 19th chapter, verse 3, some Pharisees came to him, testing him, saying, is it lawful for a woman to divorce his wife for any cause whatsoever? And he answered and said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. flesh. Consequently, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What, therefore, God has joined together, let no man separate. And they said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of, and divorce her? And he said, Because of the hardness of your heart. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this way. Anytime, you know, I, I've heard it said that uh, the words in Genesis were, were Adam's words. Th this wasn't God's teaching. This was Adam's own idea. Well, you read this, <laughs> and it's quite clear. This was God's plan. This was God's statement. For this, man sh for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is God's plan. And this is the way God intended for it to be. Now, Paul reiterates this in the uh, seventh chapter of uh, Romans, where in the uh, second and third verses we read, For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. This is God's plan. This is the way it is. But we have to always recognize that these things are sins, like other things are sins, and they are to be repented of as other things are to be repented of. We had a fella in our Sunday school class down in the Bay Area who was plagued by this. I don't know how many times we 
explained this to him and talked to him, and he just kept coming back with the same thing. I feel so bad, you know, uh, because of what he had done uh, with his first wife and then his second wife. And um, tried to, to get it through to him, yes, what you did was wrong, but, but as you repent and turn, that God cleanses and, and God forgives of sin. I mean, look what David did, and God forgave him. This doesn't mean we should go out and do it again. But the point is, God is a God of forgiveness and a God of love, and He doesn't want us to live under the bondage of our past sins and failure. We must acknowledge it. We can't go around the bush and say, well, it really isn't sin because this, that, and the other thing. We have to acknowledge it as such and recognize that that's what God calls it, but repent of it and move on, and God will bless us. God will use us. You know, it isn't the end of the world. God takes us from wherever we're at and moves us on. I mean, when you look, I mean, what did Paul do? He murdered Christians. Can you think of much worse? You know, if you're going to start ranking sins, I would say killing Christians ranks worse than adultery, to me at least. And, and yet God used Paul as, as a great, well, we know what he used Paul for, don't we? Uh, and, and so we need to view it that way. We always keep the redemptive hand of God foremost in our lives because unto us there is therefore now no condemnation if we're in Christ Jesus. And so it doesn't do us any good to go around beating ourselves over the head all the time for the sins of our past if we've repented of them. We should learn from them to not repeat them just as Abraham and Sarah should have learned. But does God cut them off and say, oh, well, you're in the same stupid trap you were in 25 years ago. I'm through with you guys. I'm going to go off and find somebody else. No, he says, Abraham is a friend of God. Can you think of a better name you'd like to have than being God's friend? And that's what Abraham was. But at the same time, we, we cannot just pass this off. Let me, we've read this passage before in the light of a different uh, situation, but the um, passage in 1 Corinthians is clearly applicable here too. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and in the Spirit of our God. Now, he is not giving here a complete list of all the sins. And he's not saying that only people who have done these things can inherit, but those who have done other sins, they can inherit. It's not intended to be a complete list. He is just using it as examples. And the point of the passage is not to make people feel bad because they were that before. The point of the passage is to point out that those who live like this in an unrepentant manner will never inherit the kingdom of God no matter what they call themselves, no matter how many churches they join or create. Nothing else is going to change the fact that they are damned if they have not repented. But if they have repented and turned from their ways, then they are, as he's saying here of the Corinthians, such were you before you were justified and before you were sanctified. Refusal to recognize the activities of sin and to repent of them indicates an unregenerate condition. And so if we know of people who call themselves believers, but they insist on living in this vileness, then all we can say is the Scripture says you are unrepentant. The Scripture says you are not a candidate for the kingdom of heaven. But when the person, you know, I mean, we all know people who have been in these, and we know people in the Scripture who, were, who fit into these categories. It's not saying anybody who happens to be homosexual is damned to go into hell. It's saying those who practice this as a lifestyle and are unrepentant. That's what it's talking about. It's not talking about the way somebody is in his mind or in his heart. I back off that. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't mean what the person happens to be 
in terms of uh, the way he feels about his sexual orientation, as long as he's not living a life of gratification of this particular uh, uh, lifestyle, uh, then, uh, of course, if he's been born again, he's going to go to heaven just like anybody else is going to heaven. Because such were some of you. <laughs> such were most of us in one form or another. The 11th verse of that passage in 1 Corinthians is the important verse, I think, because it indicates that justification and sanctification eliminate the practice of these sins in our lifestyle. Occasional failure may occur. We as Christians are going to fall from time to time. We're not to excuse our actions because that's a possibility. But we have to, at the same time, not go around putting our finger in somebody's face and saying, you did that, and therefore it says here. No. Because we all can sin. We all do sin. And the person who says, well, I've never committed adultery. Well, has that person read what Jesus says there? If you have lusted after a woman in your heart, you have committed adultery. Well, most normal men, even who are Christians, if they say that's never happened in their lives, I don't believe them. It's something that the Word helps to cleanse and purify over time, but it still can happen, and it still does happen. But when failure does occur, church discipline comes into play, and the church needs to deal with that so the person will be repentant. And we know that instance, don't we? And if we had time, we need to come to, well, we'll talk about that one next time. But where Paul talks about the man who had his own father's wife, obviously his stepmother, and was having a sexual relationship with her. And, and uh, Paul tells the church, you've got to discipline that man. You can't let it go because it brings uh, ill fame to the church to allow this to happen. Because not even amongst the pagans do they do that. So we need to... Uh, focus on, on that too. Well, uh, next week we'll finish up this section and move on into the uh, last half of chapter 20.